0: It's this week's episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I am your host, Rob Walling. Today, I revisit the six stages of SaaS growth. These are the stages that I talked through with Jordan Gall about 10 episodes ago. It was four ninety nine dollars 99 and 4 $4.99 dollars and where I compared the stages of Drip with his stages of Cart Hook. And today I bring a third founder on. His name is Anthony Eden. He runs DN Simple. DN Simple is a self-funded startup 10 years in. He has a team size of 19 people. They're fully remote and it's a domain management and they are a DNS provider as well. So they compete with GoDaddy, Namecheap, etc., I've spoken with Anthony before. He's been to at least a couple MicroConf Europe's. He was on MicroConf on air just a couple weeks ago, if you want to hear more from him. And he told a really good founder origin story on Zen Founder. You can Google that or we'll actually link it up in the show notes. But a couple hundred episodes ago a few years back. He had a really bad co-founder breakup with his brother. And that's a pretty heart wrenching story um, that he goes through. But before we dive in to our conversation, I want to let you know about MicroConf Remote. This is something that we planned more than a year ago before, all the COVID stuff happened. We were going to do seven in-person events and one virtual event called Microconf Remote, and we announced this. I believe it was November, December of 2019. And here it is. It's time to to get that going. So for now, mark your calendar for September 1st from 11 a.m. Eastern time to 4 p.m. Eastern. Obviously, if you can't make the entire time, you can drop in and drop out, but you can head to microconfremote.com to reserve your spot and get a ticket, find out a little more about some of the, the kooky, wild, and frankly, Pretty novel, innovative stuff that, that we're working on for this. This is not going to be your typical virtual summit. We've all been to too many of them in the past six months. And we've been working really hard. Uh, let me put it this way: producer Sander has been working really hard to make this a unique event. There's going to be some in-person elements here in Minneapolis that are, are creative and different and visually appealing and you know, just visually interesting. There's going to be some aspects of it that are remote, but it, it really is going to be essentially a five-hour live broadcast. And we are going to bring the MicroConf thunder. You know, we're not, we're not sitting on our laurels and, and having a bunch of people record some things on some webcams and, and stitching them together. We want to make it a MicroConf event. We want to put the MicroConf fingerprint on it, which is a unique thing, right? We, we build the events that we want to attend. And, and that's one of the reasons that MicroConf has resonated with so many people in the community is so strong and such successful entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs, but really people that want to help one another come to these events because there's something special about it. And MicroConf Remote will be that as well. We will have a hallway track. Again, we're we're innovating. I don't want to give away all the stuff, but just trust me on this. Microconfremote.com to get your ticket. And with that, let's dive into my conversation with Anthony Eden where I revisit the six stages of SaaS growth and how they applied or didn't apply to his SaaS company, DN Simple. Anthony Eden, thank you so much for joining me on the show today.
1: Well, thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Calling in all the way from France. How's how are things out there?
1: Uh, we're doing well so far. Happy to be just relaxing a little bit here down in the south of France.
0: Excellent. So, you know, today, like, like you and I have talked about offline, I wanted to bring you on the show to talk through the six stages of SaaS growth, similar to what Jordan Gall and I did in 499 and 499 and a half, just about 10 episodes ago, where I sat down and I looked at my experience with Drip going from stage one pre-launch to pre-product market fit, to stage three product market fit, to Escape Velocity, to scale to company building. Those are the six stages. And then compared those, compared the revenue milestones that that we hit with DRIP and where we were at with each stage to Jordan's journey with cart hook. And you and I had a chat maybe two weeks ago on Microconf on Air. And it occurred to me, you know, you're 10 years into building DN Simple. You have a team size of 19. And it, it became pretty apparent, like your take on this could be interesting as well, you know, to find out where has your journey varied or or lined up really well with what Jordan and I ha- have encountered in, in our journeys. And I know that you went back and listened to those two episodes. I'm curious, right off the cuff, did you have, were there any like big shocks as you were listening? Like, oh yeah, that's totally different from D.N. Simple. Or, or did you feel like quite a few of the things lined up? You
1: no, know, I felt like when I listened to it, that a lot of the stuff lined up. I, I was actually surprised that Jordan's Path, considering that he, he actually took some funding along the way, was still similar in terms of timing and revenue growth. And, and, and that was actually the only surprise that I got out of it. Everything else was pretty spot on, I feel, with the growth of, of The Simple, with the, there's slight differences in how long it took to get from one stage to the next. But generally, I, I feel that it tracks pretty well with that.
0: That's awesome, yeah. And that's kind of what I'm trying to do. I mean, now that there's going to be three of us having weighed in on this, I think it'll be an interesting experiment moving forward. Like to have a fourth and a fifth person weigh in and just to see the varying degrees of, of experience. I mean, Jordan raising money, he didn't raise so much that it changed their trajectory in in a meaningful way, right? He didn't take a huge venture round, and he ran it like a boot, he runs it like a bootstrapper, you know, like a self funded startup. Even though he had whatever a couple hundred grand in the bank, I think when they were you know as they were getting up, so. I'm excited to dive in with you today, and I'm curious, if we start with stage one, this is pre-launch. Let's talk through how long was that, what that looked like for you, was it just you working on it, did you have a co-founder at the time, and just kind of talk us through, set the stage for the the pre-launch before we get into stage
1: two. Sure, so when we started in 2010, I started this with my brother. My brother is, is more involved in the network engineering side, and he was the one that was sort of setting up the initial infrastructure for resolving DNS entries and things like that. And I spent my time working completely on the the Rails application, which was going to be the front end. We went from April until July, basically just cranking away on getting everything ready. My goal was to launch at RailsConf that year, and I just, just missed it. But shortly thereafter, I was able to, to start announcing it and getting people on board. So it took about three months during that pre-launch phase to go from nothing to a working product. And that's working, including taking money from people as, as with credit card payments and subscription and all that. We relied heavily on using outside SaaS services, what was available at the time, to minimize the, what we had to build internally. So it worked out pretty well. We just kind of got to that first launch I didn't come in with any sort of audience. I came in with, well, I guess I have my developer audience, the people that I would go to and speak with at conferences and things like that. But generally speaking, I didn't, I didn't have a mailing list. I didn't really have anything. I, I, I put it together and then I started going to some friends. I went on Twitter and I said, hey, I'm doing this. Is anybody interested in trying it out? So yeah, three months from nothing to initial launch. Wow. That's super fast, man.
0: And what, what gave you the crazy idea to think that you could compete with GoDaddy and Namecheap and, you know, all these other, these massive companies? I mean, it feels to me like in 2010, domain management and, and DNS was, was a solved problem, but obviously it wasn't because you built this great company. So what, what were you thinking at, at that point?
1: I think I was mostly focused on the terrible experience that was the majority of domain and DNS providers at that time, there was just a, a opportunity in the market because the tooling was so bad. A lot of the the companies that you're talking about, the big ones, they grew up at the end of of the last century, basically, you know, in, in in the late '90s and then the early aughts. And it just seemed like there was their websites were stuck back in that time period. So I saw this as an opportunity to do two things. One is to greatly simplify how these these interactions work. So removing a lot of the excess steps that that those sites had in them and really just focus on making a good system for registering domains and then managing the DNS around them. And then I also knew that we wanted to have an API for a lot of this stuff. And so I focused heavily after the initial launch into getting a workable API that I I could have people develop other things on top of. And I think those were really the key things that I was focusing on to differentiate from those big providers at the time.
0: Yeah, I love, I love big markets with hated competitors, you know, or hated incumbents where people despise them like a, I mean, back in the day, it was like PayPal or QuickBooks, or certainly a lot of people don't like GoDaddy. And, and when I was on Drip, it was Infusionsoft and Marketo and Pardot, these big clunky competitors. And those are spaces where if you are able to get to some kind of feature parity, there's a huge amount of work, although you did it in 90 days, it sounds like. But oftentimes, you know, there's a lot of work to get there. But if you can do that and build a better experience, and then just not be, I don't know, kind of a, kind of a company that charges people too much and it makes it really easy to compete when your competitors are just widely
1: despised i think definitely there's i mean there's a marketing angle where you essentially pick a fight you pick a fight with the biggest guy out there and you turn that fight into a david versus goliath sort of showdown if you will and then you focus on, well, in my case, what I focused on was doing what was right for the people that were using simple, focusing on taking their feedback, applying it in a timely fashion, adding functionality as, as they needed. And that really took us into sort of the post-launch phase. The initial launch was really minimal, but then as soon as people started using it, they say, hey, this would be great to have. And in fact, there was no domain registration in the first version. And people said, ah, oh, this is really cool, but I'd really love it if I didn't have to go somewhere else to register my domains. And so that functionality didn't come until about four or five months later, just to put things in perspective.
0: Yeah, very good. So I think that kind of gives us a good idea. Three months, two of you working on it, that was your pre launch phase. Stage two, I've called pre-product market fit, where you've launched and you're just trying to sort out, have I built something people want? And you're getting to that point of of really kind of locking that in. Now for Jordan, if I recall, it was zero to about 5K of MRR. And for Drip, it was about zero to 10 or 11K MRR. And it took us oh man, how long was that? Oh, it was about eight months. <laughs> I was so pain. Maybe it was, it might've been like nine months from that launch day until I felt like we really started having product market fit. And Jordan said his was 12 plus, 12 or 18 months. It was a really long time. Talk to us about DN Simple. Like, you know what, what revenue number did you feel like you did have some modicum of product market fit? And how long did it take you to get there? What was
1: the process like? So by the end of the first year, we were already doing about 10K and MRR a month. So we hit it pretty quickly in terms of a- after the launch, uh, I was out there, I was doing conferences and-, and adding functionality and trying to pull people in and seeing what we could do. And, and so our post-launch period, I mean, I-, I wrote down that I think it went all the way into 2011 because we were still adding a lot of functionality. As I mentioned, the, the registration functionality, the API, that all came within the the next six to nine months after that initial launch and slowly trying to grow it. So sometime in 2011, I think we really started to hit our stride and, and had found sort of a, a good market fit. But even through 2011, the MRR was still right around that uh, relatively low number. So I, I capped the year on average about between 10 and 12K in MRR.
0: Very cool. And what were the signs to you when you thought boy i really have built something people want what did product market fit look like for dn simple
1: for us it was there were a couple of triggers i think that made me think wow we've actually accomplished something the first was that we started getting people in who i had i didn't know i didn't know where they came from even so the 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 first customers were either friends of mine or friends of friends or friends of my brothers or whoever and, and and they started coming in but once we got to the point where we had legitimate businesses using us that I had no idea where they were coming from. I said, okay, this is, this is really interesting. And then the second bit was when people just started sharing about, wow, this is really great. This is so much better than anything that I've used out there before that I'm, I'm really happy with it. And I think that positive sharing in the community, really on, largely on Twitter, was another indicator that showed that we were doing well and we had a product that was, I think, going to be successful and has been successful.
0: Yeah, cool. And at the the time, was it still just you and your brother?
1: Yes, yep. We stayed two people all the way through 2011 and, in fact, only added on, well, who was really the first employee of d and Simple in 2012. And that came through an acquisition, and that person was Simone Carletti, and he's actually still, he's the CTO of d and Simple, still with us today and i acquired his RoboDomains business to bring him on board and that was what brought the third person in
0: very interesting and you know in terms of revenue here i'd love to cover that when we get there like was that which stage did you acquire him
1: in he was very very early like he was early revenues he, he had had the product out for a little while and his was in getting minimal revenue and at that point we were probably we'd probably gone up to say 20k MRR, I would say at that point. Got it.
0: And so you, let's dive in right there then. Stage three is product market fit. And for drip, it was about, it was from that 10k mark until right around 25k, where we entered stage four, which I'm calling escape velocity, which is where we really had figured out one or two marketing channels where growth started picking up even faster. So there's product market fit stages, hey, I've built something people want and are willing to pay for but maybe I don't have, maybe I don't have a repeatable, sustainable marketing channel yet. Like growth is good, retention is good, but it's not like blowing me away yet. Was there a time period of like that with D and Simple? And I'm curious, you have similar questions like what was the revenue range, if you recall, and how long did it take?
1: I actually went back and looked. And so the first couple of years, it, by the end of y- the year end, we were around 150K for the entire year. And then 2012, we had a big, we 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 went up, by the end of the year, 200 plus percent in growth. And so that was really when we, it's, things started to take off. And I think if I recall correctly, that was right around the time that there was a whole bunch of fiascos around GoDaddy and people were just like, I am done with this. It was the elephant shooting and it was sexist ads in the on TV for the Super Bowl. And that led to people, I, I went. I, I, in fact, I distinctly remember I was watching the Super Bowl and the ad came, I was like, oh, I cannot believe this ad is just so gross. And so I tweeted, on. I went out on Twitter and I said, if you've seen the ad and you dislike it, then take your wallet and walk. The idea is take your money to somebody that will, will not put up ads like this. And that really kicked off that sort of faster growth at that point. I, in a lot of ways, it was, it was luck. It was a lot of luck in terms of the timing and and a misstep by some of the biggest players in the market.
0: Yeah, you know, I mean, if you've listened to the podcast recently, I've started talking about the the three things that I think contribute to success. It's hard work, luck, and skill. And it is luck, but you were at the right place at the right time. You had already built a registrar and DNS provider. You had this app. You happened to see the commercial. You went on Twitter. Like, there's all this stuff that comes through. But you also had the skill to then handle the incoming traffic. You had the skill to take advantage of it when it came. It's a bunch of factors. So I think in so many entrepreneurial stories, there almost always is some element of, of fortuitous timing. But if you weren't at the right place at the right time with the right app, and you didn't take that leap or you didn't take the risk of, hey, I'm going to go on Twitter and maybe talk a little smack about a competitor, which some people wouldn't do or some people would be scared of doing. It probably wouldn't have happened the same way.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree 100% that you don't just get struck by luck. You put yourself in situations where you can take advantage of some opportunity. I'm a huge believer in setting up as many of these opportunities around you as you can. Not all of them are going to pan out. In fact, the vast majority of them are never going to show up. But for the ones that do, if you're there and ready, that's because you prepared. It just doesn't drop out of the sky.
0: <laughs> yeah. So you found product market fit. And do you remember how long it was before that growth really started ticking up for you before you hit Escape Velocity?
1: So throughout the 2011-2012 area, we, we pretty much stayed. And in fact, going into 2013, we stayed three people. And so I would say that, that by the end of 2012, we were hitting that escape velocity phase and, and then all the way through 2013. Because at that point, our growths were triple digit year over year growth. But it's, it very quickly starts slowing down because when you're small, those big leaps look huge. But by the end of 2013, we started to, to sort of, I mean, we were still growing fast, but we we weren't rocket to the moon type of growth anymore. So things started to just like stable and be, become a nice, steady growth trajectory.
0: Yeah, that's cool. And that's kind of what I've called stage four escape velocity. And with Drip and Cart Hook, they lined up quite well. It was uh, from about 25K MRR up to about 80k MRR, which is right, obviously right around a, a million dollar mark. With Escape Velocity, before we get to scale where things you have to start scaling the team and doing all that, you can you can ride Escape Velocity for a while. I think without ballooning the team. In your experience with DN Simple, was it similar revenue ranges there, 25 to 80k before you felt like you had to start scaling? And I'm also curious how long you know how long you felt like you were in Escape Velocity before you transitioned to scaling.
1: So I intended on sticking to the escape velocity part for as long as I could. And, and I think actually one of the more interesting things, and, and I recall listening to Jordan's interview with you, is the triggers that move you from one phase to the next. And for D&Simple, there was a very, very specific trigger that switched us from escape velocity to scale. It actually wasn't revenue. I mean, I don't think directly it was revenue because I think we could have continued operating fairly well in escape velocity with with a very small number of people for longer than we we did but in our case in 2014 that was the year from hell for me that was a really tough year early in the year my co-founder so my brother decided that he was done and it was not a clean break and so that was the start of a really bad year when he decided that he had to go he he basically took a lot of his operations knowledge with him and i had nobody else to lean on both both Simone and I were more on the application development side. And so it left a big gaping hole. And to me, that, was, that really quickly made me understand, oh my goodness, I need to do a better job to prepare and not have these, this gap here because we're an operational company. We really need to have a good network operator who's on the team. And so that was the next time that we went and started looking to hire. And I hired two people immediately and I had a contractor as well during that time uh, right at the beginning of 2014 to sort of fill that gap. And then t- 2014, things started to slow down. But then by the end of the year, we, we were doing well and then we got DDoSed. And so it just sort of capped off the end of a pretty horrible year. And so by the end of the year, though, we had start we had continued growing a little bit more, added on a couple more people and got to the point, I think, where, where we were eight people by the end of 2014. And at that point, that's so the trigger really to get us from escape velocity into scaling was an event for us, was the loss of a key person that triggered a better understanding that we needed to I needed to make some adjustments to, to the team and grow the team a bit.
0: Yeah, yeah, I have that redundancy. I remember that breakup, because you talked about it on Zen Founder years ago, we did a founder origin story where Sherry interviewed you. And we'll link that up in the show notes. But that's a it's a pretty devastating story. I don't you know, we don't necessarily have time to dig into it here. You already told the full one over there. What's interesting is that 2014, perhaps by coincidence, was a really shit year for me too with drip. There just a bunch of stuff went sideways. And I remember it being really hard. And I made a cash flow mistake where I had a big tax bill come because I'd made a bunch of money the year before. And I remember that just being a, a, a tough year. So I feel your pain, perhaps not in the same ways so then at the end of escape velocity then is that when you were at eight people like you feel like you were in escape velocity kind of during 2014 and that's where you had to make the transition from essentially three people up to to eight
1: yeah i think we start i I would say we started 2014 at the tail end of escape velocity and then the triggering event with the loss of, of darren from the team forced us into that next phase, which was the scale phase. And we had done really well in terms of of revenue per person, obviously, because the fewer people you have, you're growing your revenue. And it's amazing. And, and at the time, I didn't really think how important that number was. But I should have, in retrospect, understood that there are, is probably a limit that most companies can go to where the revenue per person starts to become actually painful for the team because there's just so much happening. And I missed that. Now, in, I, I sort of understand a little bit better what we can do. I, ironically, I still made the same mistake. Again, later on, we'll go over that. <laughs> in the terms of, of not seeing that that number hits sort of a threshold where it's really hard to operate a business at these types of numbers. But it's actually a really interesting number to watch. And so by the end of 2014, we had add-on numerous people and reduce that revenue per person and and it became more comfortable again even though we did get ddos that was a really hard time but coming out the other end of that we had kind of epiphany going into 2015 that if we're going to do this we need to do this business so that there are enough team members to continue operating with even if one person goes away
0: Right, yeah, you need that. Like I said earlier, you have to have that redundancy at a certain point, right? You start to scale up to a million a year, you're past that, and and you just have to think about it. You've mentioned this, this revenue per employee number, which I have heard, I've heard several people talk about, and obviously Basecamp is known for having 50 employees and what we think they're doing 100 million ARR or something. So they're like, or north of that, right? So they have this outrageously high number, probably one of the highest uh, of any SaaS. But I'm curious where you feel like a healthy number is, because when, as you said, when you go too high, there's too much pain on your team. And when you go too low, the business isn't profitable. But in your experience, where's the healthy range?
1: I mean, it depends largely on the business. I think in a SaaS business, you, your healthy range is probably 250,000 to 300,000 per employee, is what I would be aiming for. I think. If I look back, so I wrote down each of the years and sort of looked at what our revenue per employee would be or revenue per team member, because I would count contractors as well and basically looked at that and said, okay, at what point did things really start to hurt? And I think we were pretty comfortable in the the two hundred fifty to three hundred thousand dollar range. When it got over the three hundred, then when you get to the $350,000, 400000 k range, it starts to get hard. Which it makes me appreciate when you if you have a company like Basecamp that can do so much with such a small team. It really is an impressive. It's an impressive feat, and I can't even imagine scaling that up to say you know an Apple sized company where they're they're doing huge amounts of revenue per employee. It's just, it's mind-boggling.
0: Yeah, I, I bet MailChimp is similar, right? Because I believe they they have to be approaching if they haven't passed, uh, you know, a billion in revenue. I, I think they did 700 million and maybe it was last year. And so given their growth rate, I'm sure they're up there, but their headcount is not... It's, it's not as big as you would think for a company doing that much, you know, bootstrap company in essence, doing that much revenue. I kind of want to give more thought to it. And cause I've heard people throw around, Oh, you can do, and again, it does depend on the business, right? How, how support intensive is it? You can have a super simple tool that maybe you only need one or two support people for, you know, to support a thousand customers versus you have a really complicated marketing automation suite or whatever. And you need a lot of customer success people just to get people onboarded and I think the number varies, but I, I do like that range. I've always thought of it between about 250 and 500K. It's kind of the number in my head, but I know that there are people doing north of that, especially really the slower you grow, the less, you know, support you need, the less customer success, the less sales, the less, a lot of things. And I think you can have higher profit margins or at least a higher revenue per employee if you're on this really slow growth, and that's where, like, although Basecamp's doing an enormous amount of revenue, they've been doing it for they're they're 15, 16 years in, and so I th- I think they had a bit of a luxury. Still, it's an amazing. I mean, because if, if they are at 100 million and they're 55 employees or whatever, I mean, that's almost two million per employee. That's just astronomical. But that wouldn't be something I would personally strive for in my company because I think I think it's perhaps unrealistic. Much like a lot of the stuff Basecamp does, it's just unrealistic for most of us. You know, they they hit a lottery ticket and they did a great job and build an incredible business but it can be hard to model our own companies after the outliers, right? Like the MailChimp's and and the Basecamp's.
1: Sure. And other factors as you mentioned is the sales in the, the number of people you have, are you doing enterprise type sales? Are you doing hands-off self-service? There's so many factors involved, but it really, I mean, it's impressive, but I'm with you. I I don't think I would be in the position where I would want to operate a company at that type of size. I mean, if it happened, then so be it. But it's also not the kind of thing that, that I, I never designed for this to work this way. This is all looking back at sort of the numbers and applying the feelings that I felt at each point along the way when those numbers hit a certain point and how the team interacted with each other. It's more looking back rather than saying, oh, I would plan to try to do, you know, 500 to a million in revenue per employee.
0: Speaking of milestones, do you remember like celebrating any of these, like when you hit a million ARR or hundred K MRR or whatever, did you go out to dinner with the, with the wife or, or pop, you know, champagne with the employees? I mean, how were you at doing that?
1: I'm kind of, I feel like I'm more on your side than where I didn't celebrate very well, but at the same time, we, the team would get together. We would do meetups three times a year. And we would always make those meetups an enjoyable time to be together. We would open some bottles of wine or, or champagne or it depends on where we were in the world. But we would spend part of the time just being together and celebrating the fact that we have this business that we can, we can operate and at the same time live our lives. And so we didn't celebrate necessarily the milestones per se, but we still celebrated regularly just, just the existence of this, the, the sheer... The fact that we have such a, a wonderful opportunity to continue working on something that's both mostly enjoyable and profitable.
0: Yeah, I call those pinch myself moments where I look around and say, like, do you ever pinch yourself and just say, like, we did this. This is incredible. You know, this was a goal, a dream that I had five, 10, 15 years ago to own a company and and never really never thought I would be able to do it. And then you look around and you run a company of, of 19 people doing millions of dollars, you know, presumably in revenue a year, 10 years in. I mean, it's just incredible, you know?
1: Yeah, definitely have my moments like that. And then, and then the next day, something goes south and <laughs>
0: I said, why do I do this to myself? Right. <laughs> exactly. Why don't I just go get a job? Yeah. So we've covered Escape Velocity, stage four. So stage five is scale. And, and you kind of talked about that, how that was where you were forced, your brother left and you were forced to like scale up to eight people, 80K to about 200K MRR. Does that ring true with you? And, and how long do you feel like you were in the scale
1: phase? So we actually got that. That's that. This is interesting. When I went back, and look, we stayed after we got to about 12 people and we stayed in the scale phase for four years and, and the revenue numbers kept going up, but we were at a fairly optimized. We had some turnover in the team, but we would get another we get other people in and we had a, a pretty good dynamic in the team and we were able to pretty much stabilize at a good point where where we were comfortable so the revenues would grow but the our head count wouldn't and so we stayed there pretty much all the way up through 2018 and again i look at the revenue per employee and i watch, i'd see this number just keep going up up and up and we were doing well but at the same time then at the end of 2018 and in 2019 we said, okay, there's certain things that are getting challenging. So one of the things that we do at d simple is everybody does support. Every team member, including myself. We all keep track of the support queue. We all answer support. But we started to get the feeling like, well, we can do this, but we're actually doing our customers a disservice because not, not all of them need the technical support. They need somebody there who's maybe an advocate for them. And so we started thinking about customer success as, as independent thing inside of being simple. And I think that was the start of us looking to move from the scale phase into the building a company phase. And I think when you move in an engineering organization, you can just keep adding engineers and you can scale pretty well if you can do a lot of automation. You can automate, you can have knowledge bases and you can you could do outsource first tier support that then is backed up by your, your engineers. You can do all kinds of things to grow But at the same time, you start to sacrifice the quality of specific areas, whether it's the quality of bringing on a contract that is not your typical self-service contract, you know, more of an enterprise contract. If you don't have somebody there to to handle that, then they get a sort of a weak experience. If you don't have somebody to to take care of customer success, so that's support and also the account management, things like that, well, then they have a bad experience, the people that fit into that bucket. So in 2018, we started looking at this at the tail end and said, you know, maybe it's time to start looking for some roles, some people and putting them in the roles outside of engineering. And I think that was kind of the trigger that was the next trigger that moved us into the company building phase where we started actually saying, you know, we should probably write down what we do here. We should probably start to look at who does what and what roles are being underserviced because we don't have an expert in that role.
0: Yeah. And that to me is a mark of starting to think about company building. It's, there's mission, vision, values type stuff where, hey, we need to communicate the culture to new people. We are getting past, you know, that phrase, two pizza teams, right? When your team gets gets larger than can eat two pizzas, you know, they're gonna have, you're going to need three or four pizzas or whatever. It's just a way to measure team size. When you start getting past that, you have to have some structure in place or else stuff goes haywire. And it sounds like you were pretty deliberate about recognizing that. A lot of founders, especially first-time founders, they get to the 15 or the 20 employee mark before they really realize that they've created a a big hairball and a a big mess and no titles and no and people have overlapping responsibilities and all that so i'm curious how you detected that and why you were kind of ahead of the game there as you switched into this phase six of, of company building
1: i would credit it a lot to the team and the ability to openly discuss these items so when we get together to do our meetups it's a very open forum it's not, it's not me telling the team what we're going to do. It's, it's active discussions about the strategy and direction of the company, the things that work and the things that don't, what we do well and what we can do better. And so it's a credit to the team that they came out, it came from different people in different fashions, but they sort of brought it to my attention that, hey, we're, we can probably do better here if we put somebody in this role. And then it's just me listening to them and accepting that, oh yeah, okay, I can't continue running this as an as an engineering only company, but I can continue with the set of values that built DNS simple from the ground up, which is focusing on automation, focusing on customers, and focusing on the team working well together.
0: Yeah, that's really that's nice that you've hired well to have people who are that in tune with the org, you know, that they're able to give you candid feedback.
1: I hope that my attitude towards them has helped encourage that as well by not, by not shutting them down. Even though there are some ideas that maybe don't fit right away, I try to hear it out. Uh, I couldn't do this. If you asked Anthony from 20 years ago to do this, there's no way he would have been able to do this. He was way too thick in his head way too stubborn, and would have immediately cut off anybody who tried to give a suggestion. And I think that is the one thing that I've kind of had the luxury of developing over the 10 years is pushing that down and listening to the people around me, whether that's the team or the customers or advisors as well.
0: And so... Perhaps the spoiler question is, you know, stage six company building. I think that's maybe the stage you're in now. Do you think there's a stage seven? I mean, there must be. But I I just wonder what that what that transition looks like.
1: So one of the things that I'm what I'm seeing here and what I've seen with other companies is that you hit that seven figure mark. There's a big difference between a million dollars in revenue in year and 10 million dollars. And the steps to get from the 1 million a year to the 10 million are actually very significant and they require a change in mindset. And I think that's the company building phase, like building a company at that point is when you're really thinking about the company. And my guess is, and I'm still I'm testing the waters here and seeing if I understand this, but it's when you start to look beyond being a single product or a single service. And you start to think of the company as an umbrella for accomplishing things that, are, that work well together, but maybe aren't in the original line of the product. So you start to think, can I do a, and not a second product that's completely different, but can I do something that is another line of revenue that works well with what I have, but is, is, is still able to be independent and used independently? Because to date, all of the revenue in d and Simple all comes from services built into the dn simple application whether that's email forwarding or domain registration or ssl certificates these are all built into the application and so now i'm starting to think if we want to go to that next step what is another source of revenue that maybe is able to op- integrate well with DNSimple but operate independently
0: yeah i like that i'm stage seven empire building I'm just gonna throw it out <laughs> there. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, don't know
1: if that's I it. like it. Uh,
0: well, I mean, it's interesting because you know, you look at Intercom and how they expanded. You look at uh, Basecamp. You know, they've launched a bunch of different products. But then I see others that haven't gone down down that road, like Zapier. I, you know, I really think of them still as a single product and segment. Mailchimp kind of has built. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's it's a certainly a possibility of uh, like one possible avenue to start adding on and expanding outside that, that core competency. Have you started thinking about that then for yes, d and Yeah,
1: okay. yeah, yeah. We've been, it's one of the things that we've been talking about recently is, okay, like we, we want to, we still want to have the innovation in the world of domain and DNS. We still want to continue working hard on growing our place in the market and in delivering really high quality service to our customers. And we'll, we continue to invest in, in infrastructure and continue to invest in people and for the foreseeable future, that's where where our growth will come from. But at the same time, we're starting to look and say what other gaps are we, what types of things would we like to give to our customers there where there are gaps in the marketplace right now, similar to what we experienced in the very early days of DN Simple, where you had some big key players and they were well established, but they had sort of they had lost some of their traction or lost some of their their mojo because they got too comfortable. And so that's, to me, it's like the next thing that I can look at and say, okay, where else is close to D&Simple, but can be an area of revenue growth because we can innovate there. And it could come through, there's a lot of companies do it a lot of different ways. Some do it through acquisitions, right? One path into that, the empire building, if you will, is through acquiring smaller businesses that have something innovative, but where you can actually work better with them. So that's a path. Another path is independent product development, where you set a tiger team off to the side and say, OK, put together several things and let's test the waters with them and see what works and what doesn't. The other option is that you know, a lot of companies start to hit this size and they say, I, wanna, I don't want to do this alone. I'm OK with being part of somebody else's empire. And so that's that's the other direction that we see where a company where the, the founders say, OK, you know what, we can keep doing this and we want to keep doing this. But we want to do it with another partner who has already achieved, you know, the larger scale and and, and already has a foothold in areas that we want to go into. So there's lots of angles.
0: Yeah. Speaking of acquisitions, I was going to ask you, I mean, I have to imagine that you've had people approach you about acquiring the simple over the years. A is that true and B ha, has that ever been something you've you've
1: considered. So yes, it's been true. Over the years, different companies have come in and said, "Hey, you're interesting what you're doing is really interesting. Would you like to talk?" And I usually will talk to them. Nothing has ever gone any further than just initial conversations. And part of that is just because I I really love what I do and I love the ethos inside of Simple. I love the way the team works together. I love the product and how it works. And I, and I feel like there's more to do within this space. So I'm not quite ready to get out of it yet. I, still, I feel like I have more energy to put back into it. I have a, a longer term vision that we still haven't achieved. And so for me, I have a lot of energy still to just keep going. And so for now, yeah. And I, I, I'm happy to stick with making this thing keep growing and, and keep on making the product better for our customers. That satisfies me for the moment. But yeah, we've had people come in over the years and at different levels, but nothing, nothing, nothing to the point where it was, hey, let's go into due diligence, no letter of intent or anything like that. The, the right thing hasn't shown up for that yet.
0: Yeah. And that's the norm, right? I mean, people, when you build a business into seven figures or eight figures, you will absolutely get a bunch of funding offers and a bunch of acquisition conversations that start and most of them go nowhere, you know, and that's something taking the first call I think is a good rule of thumb to do it if you feel like they might have the cash to... actually do it and are not wasting time but to not get distracted by it i mean that's the worst part right is somebody comes in and wants to do an aqua hire and and you waste a bunch of time on phone calls with them in the early days when it when it's just a distraction you know and it's pulling you away from doing product market fit escape velocity and all that stuff
1: Yeah, generally what i do is i just try to be i'm trying to stay as honest as i can in those conversations brutally honest at some points where i say this is the situation i love what i do we make good money So if you're going to come in, you're going to have to have an offer that's too good for me to turn down. And that usually ends the conversation because most, most buyers are going to be private equity or they're going to be independently funded. Or yes, I've had, like you were saying, I also have had a lot of venture capitalist interests over the years, but it's, it's never felt right for this business. This business is a steady growth business. It's not one where I've ever felt like we've had something that is oh, let's shoot for the moon type situation and try to become a $100 million or more company quickly. That's what a venture capitalist is looking to fund. They're looking to fund somebody who really wants to, to put fuel into the rocket and try to take off. And, and I just, that hasn't interested me. So we'll have the conversations, but it usually ends pretty quickly when I'm brutally honest about my situation.
0: Sir, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Folks want to connect with you. You are A. Eden on Twitter, and you are really active in MicroConf Connect, and I appreciate that because you're a more experienced founder um, than a lot of folks, and I feel like you lend a lot of knowledge and insight. So if folks want to uh, kind of be around and glean from your your knowledgeable aura, they can uh, hit microconfconnect.com and connect with you in there. And of course, dnsimple.com if folks want to check out what you've been working on for the past decade.
1: Yep, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on and definitely love the, the MicroConf Connect community. Love being able to get in there and, and talk with other people, both that are in earlier phases and also people that are in a similar situation that I'm in. It's just really, it's been really helpful just to sort of follow along with what other people do. It's pretty incredible. It's a great community. So I'm very, very happy about that.
0: Thanks, sir. Appreciate it. Have a good one. All right, you too. Thank you again to Anthony for coming on the show and thank you, for listening to Startups for the Rest of Us every week. If you're not already subscribed, I'm not sure how you're listening to this episode, but please head into a podcatcher. Click the subscribe button. Share this with a friend. Would love uh, a tweet. We are at Startups Pod on Twitter. You can follow us. You can at mention us. I'll take any help you can lend in terms of helping us spread the word about this, this message that you can build a startup, you can build a SaaS company without venture funding, and you can be ambitious without having to to put your relationships and your your family life and potentially your your health on the line in order to to build a company. And that's really what MicroConf and Startups for the Rest of Us and Tiny Seed and my blog and every, all my writing, just everything that we've done is aimed towards telling more people that this path is out there because so many people just don't know it exists and they don't know that it's viable and we want to be the people to show them that it is. So anything you can do to help us get the message out, I'd appreciate it. And I will be in your earbuds next Tuesday morning.